Good morning, everyone. Nice to have all of you here this morning. We're a nice, intimate group. (laughs) Nice to have you back. So lovely. (laughs) And um, I'm always so uh, grateful when I sit here and look at people because I it makes me know how much my sangha has supported my practice in all kinds of ways. Just, just being here and things you say. And, and um, I also am so grateful to my teacher for <laughs> everything, including taking care of our um, Zoom people this morning, as well as everything else. Welcome, everyone, on our Zoom group. So um, what I'm talking about this morning are these um, transformation stories. They're, um, they're, they're called transformation tales. And it's a funniest, it's a funny thing, but there are just a number of these tales in the sutra literature that have um, an encounter, a dialogue between a female practitioner and the Buddha or a Bodhisattva or somebody, and they're highly attained. And then somebody says, but wait a minute, shouldn't you change into a man before you <laughs> try to become a Buddha? <laughs> um, and so uh, there's just a, <coughs> quite a number of these. And so I'm going to show, talk about three of them today, and we'll talk about why why they would have such a objection <laughs> to a woman doing that. So the first one is in the Lotus Sutra, and this is the Dragon Princess in the Lotus Lotus Sutra. She's the um, Naga King's daughter, and a Naga is a serp- half serpent, half human. Um, semi-divine creature who um, was considered to have uh, very strong, handsome species who could assume either wholly human or wholly serpentine form and were potentially dangerous, but also beneficial. So that's that's who we're talking about. She's an eight-year-old girl, and she's the daughter of a Naga king. So um, the... The episode begins where there's a question that she could quickly become a Buddha. And despite several elements of her identity that would seem to prevent it, her age, her gender, and her status as a a non-human. So Manjushri Bodhisattva starts the episode by introducing her with all kinds of her, her attainments as a practitioner. He tells the assembly that she has sharp faculties, she's well acquainted with living beings, a master of incantations, she has experience of entering deeply into meditation. Not only that, she's reached the stage of never backsliding, and she has compassion for all living, all the living as if they were her own children. The hitch comes when the idea is raised that she might attain Buddhahood. Accumulated wisdom bodhisattva raises an objection, saying, Shakyamuni Buddha. (laughs) Uh, 
uh, spent countless lives building up merit as a bodhisattva. And so how could this eight-year-old girl just suddenly say she's going to become a Buddha? Um, Then Shariputra raises a second doubt, and his doubt concerns her feminine body as a bar to her attainment. He says, um, he speaks like someone who's pointing and pointing out an over uh, an obvious oversight. He says, you think that in no time at all, you will attain the unexcelled way. That is hard to believe. Why? Because the body of a woman is filthy and impure, not a vessel for the Dharma. How could you obtain unexcelled awakening? So in this idea that women's bodies are impure, it's, he's naming the Brahmanical uh, ideology of purity that was central in Indian life in those days. So the sutra writer is using Shariputra as a, the one who blurts out something that other people might have been thinking but don't say. Um, and the other thing about Shariputra is that he's cast as what's called a Shravaka in this sutra. So he's someone who follows the path of the early Buddhist disciples, um, the pre-Mahayana uh, path of, of um, dualistic thinking as they, as they thought of it. So he... Um, so just to clarify that, I'll just say a little bit about the what that means, just to make sure that we're all on the same page. So what he's referring to, this, this sutra is a Mahayana sutra, and our school is a Mahayana, Soto Zen Buddhism is Mahayana Buddhism. Um, so we focus on the path of Bodhisattva, and um, actually, Wade is going to teach a class on the path of Bodhisattva soon. Maybe, is it May or March? Or May. May, yes. So um, the idea is that one's path toward enlightenment is, is to benefit all beings, um, not to benefit oneself alone. Um, and then, uh, so... Even when you attain enlightenment, you're still there working to help other people. That's the other sentient beings. So Mahayana sutras tend to be quite interested in advancing the Mahayana way. It was, and they often are denigrating other ways. So we can, it literally means great vehicle. So when we have Shariputra cast as, kind of a goober <laughs> in the sutra. That's why. So there's a rhetorical situation here that he's the old way and the Mahayana is the new way and they're kind of showing it's inclusive and not exclusive and non-dualistic. It's a big, big um, context of what's going on in, the, in this transformation tale. So... Um, so like I said, he's the voice of the pre-Mahayana vision. And um, so he's the bumbling questioner who misses the point by a wide mark. And that gives the sutra writer a chance to score a point for inclusive and universal vision of Mahayana. Uh, he ends by asking her, 
how then could you in a woman's body so quickly become a Buddha? So even before he raises his doubt about her, though, there's an exchange that's taken place. And this is a nonverbal exchange between the dragon princess and the Buddha. She and the Buddha enact a ritual of gift giving and receiving. Uh, she appears, prostrates herself at the Buddha's feet, and then praises him in verse, referring pointedly to his Dharma body. And she stipulates, only the Buddha can bear witness to this. I will reveal the teaching of the great vehicle to save living beings from suffering. She presents a precious jewel to the Buddha who immediately accepts it. And it's only after this wordless action that she addresses accumulated wisdom, bodhisattva and Shariputra's objections. She states, I presented my precious jewel and the world honored one accepted it. And then she asks, was that not done quickly? And um, her simple question elicits a simple answer, most quickly. And then she demonstrates the power and possibility of transformation, telling them, use your holy powers to watch me become a Buddha even more quickly than that. In a flash, she transforms into a male body where she takes up bodhisattva practice, enters a world named Spotless, attains impartial, proper awakening, and with the 32 characteristics and 80 different attractive features of a Buddha, preaches the Dharma. So her action is done in a playful attitude. It, it feels playful when you read it. And she does, just as Shariputra suggests she, that she must do, she takes on a masculine body, shifting easily from female to male as if she were just turning a key. And in doing so, she renders the power of emptiness or non-duality visible. And I want to tell you a little bit about emptiness, this word that you'll you hear a lot, and um, just to make sure that it, it makes sense. So in Mahayana Buddhism, the word for emptiness is shunyata, and it refers to the idea that all things are empty of intrinsic existence and nature. And that just means that everything comes to be in a dynamic flow of causes and conditions, not independently. So the, like a cloud, like the name of our temple is auspicious cloud. It comes together in a constellation that's very, it kind of, seems kind of tenuous. And there it is, a cloud, and then it's not a cloud. And that's kind of the way we all are. And all things are, this lectern, everything. It's causes and conditions bring it into being, and then causes and conditions change it into another form. Transformation is just part of, part of reality, I guess. It is reality, transformation. So that's what we mean when we say emptiness, at least one thing <laughs> it means. Um, so when she changes so easily, she's showing the emptiness of that identity category of male, female, of masculine, feminine. So it ends with a silent affirmation of accumulated wisdom, Bodhisattva and Shariputra. And so even though I say that she demonstrates non-duality, 
so easily shape-shifting into a male body. I still have to admit I don't find it as satisfying as I would have if she had stayed in her girl's body performing the, um, these actions. But there are many transformation tales that go many permutations on this that, can, can, um, that we can look at. So you find many of these, as I said, transformation tales in the sutra literature. These are wives or daughters. They're young and old. They're um, householders or um, daughters of monarchs. They're, um, so each of them addresses in one way or another this cultural bias against women in the spiritual life. Each one of these girls or women demonstrates a very high level of dharmic understanding and leaves the bundling questioner um, in the dust. <laughs> so one common thread of this insubstantiality of gender as an identity category, but the, that realization comes out of a broader understanding that all dharmas, that is all different aspects of reality, are figments of the imagination that construct them. So we, we perceive things, we're, our, our constructive imagination is perceiving and deciding what things are when we, before we even name it or see it. Um, so next one is goddess. So this one is in the Vimalakirti Sutra. And so this one uh, relates to this Vimalakirti Sutra, where in the middle of a discussion, a goddess who has been living in Vimalakirti's house just appears and starts speaking. So the context of her appearance is a discussion that started by Manjushri, who asks, how does compassion for sentient beings arise when they are known to be empty? So if we were just saying that people and sentient beings are these kind of tenuous constellations of causes and conditions, well, how do you feel compassion for that? You just say, well, it's not going to last. <laughs> you know, if you, how do you feel? That's what the, it's a very beautiful question that we can all ask all the time. And so in his answer, Vimalakirti balances the wisdom of emptiness and the compassion of open-heartedness. At the um, end of the dialogue, Vimalakirti names the paradoxical logic of emptiness. And that's what triggers the entrance of the goddess. So he says, non-abiding is without any fundamental basis. All dharmas are established on the fundamental basis of non-abiding. So this also requires a little bit of explanation. Non-abiding is central to our practice. We, um, we don't have a Bible. We don't have a foundational text that we say in every situation, you should go to this one uh, verse or text and it'll tell you what to do. What instead we work with is uh, prajna paramita. So that's the wisdom beyond wisdom. We meet every situation with the wisdom that arises at that moment in that situation. Um, and so we chant the Heart Sutra. We chanted it this morning, and it says in it, with nothing to depend on, 
A bodhisattva relies on prajna paramita, that means wisdom beyond wisdom, and thus is without hindrance. Without hindrance, there is no fear. It's a wonderful uh, promise, <laughs> wonderful reality. So um, it means that we don't, yeah, so I said that. We don't, we don't have a doctrine that's a bedrock of our practice. Um, so as if to, te- to illustrate the teaching of non-abiding, not abiding in any foundation, the goddess appears in the room. So similar to the dragon girl, the goddess begins not with words, but with a demonstration of the teaching of emptiness. She scatters heavenly flowers over the assembly. It's, it sounds like it's a room that there would be just a few people in it, but there are many, many, many people in this room, sentient beings in this room. And she scatters flowers over everyone. And the funny thing is that the flowers stick to the shravakas or the disciples like Shariputra and they fall off everybody else. So they land and fall off or they stick to them. So Shariputra feels uncomfortable with these flowers all over him (laughs) because it's against the rules to be wearing all these decorative flowers. (laughs) And so um, he, so it's Shariputra again, the rule following questions that he comes up with and um, that his kind of being really strict with rules is contrasted with the goddess's playful language. So it's already kind of playful that she's covering him with flowers and not, and not letting them come off him. So he is cornered into making a claim that reveals he's thinking in dualistic terms When she asks him why he wants her to remove the flowers from him, he says, these flowers are contrary to the Dharma. So I would like you to remove them. (laughs) Um, Then she leads him, therefore, to demonstrate the error of relying on rules instead of coursing in the non-abiding wisdom of emptiness. Significantly, their debate begins with this injunction to speak. So a lot of this has to do with how important it is to speak the Dharma, even though you know you might be getting it wrong or you might be making things seem too categorical or or strict. Um, So she wants him to speak. So the goddess asks him to express verbally how long he has been emancipated. And when Shariputra remains silent, the goddess responds with a defense of verbal expression in preaching the Dharma. She says, speech and words are entirely the characteristics of emancipation because emancipation parallels the nature of words. She says they are neither internal nor external nor intermediate. Like all dharmas then, neither speech nor emancipation abide in distinct categories. Shariputra, for his part, attempts to corner her with a series of questions leading inevitably to her gender. The resort to the question of gender suggests its powerful role in Dharma inquiry. With femininity as a category of exclusion that was happening at the time, this sutra, whose focus is on emptiness, 
uses the disciples' focus on feminine gendering as a tool for rooting out fixed views. So he's, uh, it's a, it ends up being a really powerful identity category, not something that needs to be changed or sent away, <laughs> covered up. So first, Shari Putra exclaims his praise of um, the goddess's attainment, wondering through what realization she has such eloquence. So it, even though it sounds like praise, he's also kind of, kind of trying to peg her as to what, you know, wh- where she comes from. Um, and so he's measuring her realization with this quantifying question. And she answers with the emptiness teaching, noting, I am without attainment and without realization, explaining that before he asks that if she affirmed um, she had attainment and realization, she would be self-conceited. Not to be deterred, Shari Putra asks another question that would place her in a clear category, wondering if she, which of the three vehicles she seeks. So instead of answering directly, she launches into an extended description of the room in which she stayed for 12 years. And she says, in this room, she's heard the Buddha's inconceivable dharma of the Bodhisattva's great sympathy and compassion. She uses the language of abundance to describe the room of the Bodhisattva's teaching. And she ends with the question, who could see these inconceivable things and still take pleasure in the dharma of the rule following disciples? <laughs> That's my paraphrase, <laughs> the rule following. Um, instead of responding to the question, he resorts to the last category of identity in which he pegs her, and that's her gender. And he asks her, why do you not transform your female body? The non sequitur, the, the idea that she's asked him one question, then he goes and asks her this other question without responding to it, um, shows his inability to hear her teaching while she appears in feminine form. To answer him, she returns to the language of magic with which she began the exchange, saying that she's been attempting to no avail for 12 years to decipher the characteristic of being female. She asks him another question, why should I transform it? And she thus leads him to admit the futility of transforming an indeterminate characteristic that has been conjured. That she's not satisfied with just getting him to understand it intellectually. She also wants to show him. So in a flash, the goddess moves to magical action, transforming both him and herself. So she makes him the goddess, and she makes herself Shari Kutra. <laughs> so from the standpoint of that reversal, she now asks him, why do you not transform <laughs> this female body? And the question raises the issue of an individual's power to move outside of identity categories by an act of will. Um, Shari Putra answers that he doesn't know how she did it, how she managed the transformation. She explains that if he were able to transform this female body, then all females would be able to do so. 
adding, just as Shariputra is not female, but is manifesting a female body, so are all females likewise. Although they manifest female bodies, they are not female. In fact, she adds, all dharmas are neither male nor female. So the goddess now withdraws her numinous power and lets him go back to being Shariputra, and she goes back to being the goddess. And then she asks him to voice the lesson that he's learned. Um, she says, uh, now where does the characteristic of form of the female body occur? And Shariputra's reply confirms his understanding. It is without occurrence and without non-occurrence. So he now uses this language in such a way as to thwart its categories. So he's not saying it's one thing or the other. It's not, and it's not. <laughs> so unlike the dragon princess, the goddess addresses the slippery question of identity categories, and she does so using this both and logic. Identity categories like all dharmas are empty, but still they do occur. Identity categories do occur, and so we must grapple with them, not just dismiss them as meaningless. Now, third one, third and last, is the lay woman Gangotra. So this encounter differs from the other transformation stories in the simple fact that she doesn't transform out of her female body. Using no rhetorical flourishes and taking no unusual actions, Gangatara startles her listeners with her tenacity of inquiry. The Indian translator Bodhi Ruchi included this dialogue in the Maharatkada Sutra, which is actually a collection of sutras that were written over several centuries. And its play of language is what links it to the other transformation tales. In short, Gangatara's uncompromising interrogation of language categories prompts the Buddha to acknowledge the larger persuasive purpose of the dialogue, thus inviting him to engage with her in exploring the limits of language and preaching the Dharma. So there's a, this playful element in the discourse where she's insisting on keeping everything at play, I guess is a short way to say that. So the sutra is very short sutra, maybe a page and a half single spaced. Um, it opens with a conventional invitation to verify dharma, dharmic understanding that like the earlier narratives, Gangatara's reference to magic points subtly to the instability of identity categories. The Buddha's first question when she approaches him is a standard opening question used to establish a monk's level of understanding. Where do you come from? And her response signifies her understanding of non-self. In fact, she does not answer in the declarative. Instead, she asks her own question. This is shortening it because it goes back and forth, back and forth. And so I'm just going to give you hers. She says, if one asks a magically produced being, where do you come from? How should the question be answered? She then pursues the point saying, is it not true that all things are illusory like magic? Why do you ask me where I came from? 
So one thing she's doing here is shifting from a line of inquiry aimed at uncovering the emptiness of all dharmas to, que- to questioning to a question pointing to the very need for dialogue about dharma. She knows that their exchange has a broader purpose than verifying her own personal attainment. She prompts the Buddha to acknowledge the wider spatial and time frame of their dialogue to demonstrate uh, a demonstration of Dharma inquiry. So she's showing that in her questions, it's not just about her and the Buddha speaking together. It's, it's a demonstration of dialogue that everybody's hearing, including us today, all these centuries later. So, um, He answers, I raise the question because there are in this assembly good men and good women who can be brought to maturity, broadening the frame of their dialogue from that between two people to this big, wide audience that goes throughout space and time. Unlike the earlier transformation tales, no bodhisattva asks her questions as to why, with her deep knowledge and understanding, she does not transform into a man so that she can reach a higher level. And without that impetus of the surprise and then the challenge to her capacity to understand, Gongatara doesn't have to resort to bodily transformation to demonstrate it. Here it's the Buddha who shifts from speech to magical actions to to confirm a point. He smiles graciously and emits rays of colored lights light from his forehead and this colored light illuminates countless lands even reaching to the brahma heaven so the idea is that he's showing how many people are listening how many how many sentient beings are are actually present at that at that dialogue um so instead of one of the customary questioning bodhisattvas like shariputra The venerable Ananda is the one who asks the meaning of the Buddha's smile. And it's tempting to look at this choice of Ananda because he's the one who uh, advocated for women to join the Sangha at the beginning of the very, uh, very beginning of the Sangha. So the Buddha answers with an affirmation of the value of the dialogue in which he's engaged with Gangatada. I recall that in the past, a thousand Tathagatas, Tathagata is a word for the Buddha, an awakened one, also taught this Dharma here. And each of those assemblies was also led by a laywoman named Gangatara. So the, the dialogue happens not just one time, but many, many, many times. The, the boundaries of space and time are also categories that are fluid. Um, So the immediate situation of the dialogue shifts to a timeless frame. It's enacted in countless world systems by countless iterations of the Buddha and Gangatara. The Buddha's affirmation is confirmed and amplified by the gods of the desire realm who say, rare indeed is this lay woman who can converse fearlessly with the Tathagata on equal terms. Asking questions and interrogating assumptions and explaining principles and affirming understanding are all necessary for advancing the understanding of the Sangha. Gangatada's subject position as a laywoman um, enables her to signal that broader frame 
grounding the sometimes head-turning discourse of Dharma inquiry in the Mahayana vow to save all beings. The danger in these delightful stories, perhaps, of girls and women contesting the entrenched views of misogyny is to forget that both and logic of the goddess. If we just say gender is like all dharmas, just a dream, a figment of our imagination that divides what is not divisible, then we deny gender equality in favor of this blissful idea of formlessness. And so we fail to touch on this lived experience that these girls and women would have had when they left those Dharma inquiries and went home and resumed their roles in their households. It's useful to think of our dialogues as a sangha, as a space which can, which can lead to changes in the social order. From the dragon princess to the goddess to Gangotara, the common thread is the power of gender or perhaps any identity category as a ground note in exploring the Dharma. From their outsider status as feminine subjects, they have the breadth of vision to interrogate this universally persistent habit of clinging to categories. The act of engaging in dialogue for rhetorical purpose of preaching the Dharma is imperative, but it must be done with the playfulness that enables us to escape the grasp of fixed ideas. Thank you very much.